Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I thank you for the space and time and place. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us a mind that can understand and hands to receive all that you have for each of us today. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit and let the words that I speak come from your heart. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever played hide and seek when you were a kid? I remember playing this when our kids were pretty small, like maybe three or four years old. And when you play hide and seek with um, with young children, it's such a fun experience because they ruin the game for themselves every single time. You know where they've hidden. You can hear them rustling and running through and you hear them kind of giggling like, oh no, mommy's not going to find me. And you can usually see them. <laughs> They're usually sticking out behind a couch or from behind a, um, a picture and you, you know where they're hiding. It's pretty obvious. I remember one time our son Josiah was hiding under the kitchen table and there was no tablecloth, nothing to hide him. He was well in plain view, but in his mind, he thought he was hidden pretty good. <laughs> so we would walk around the house and say, oh, where's Josiah? Josiah, I wonder where you are. And at one point he piped up and said, I'm here. I'm right here. <laughs> of course, we knew that we could see him and we could definitely hear him. And um, it was kind of a funny thing from when he was a kid. But today we're going to talk about how God is the God who sees us. And sometimes we think we're playing hide and seek with God. We think that we're hiding parts of our lives or parts of ourselves from him. Like, he can't really see that. I, you know, I've got that covered. And yet God can see all of it. And God comes looking for us and God knows us and he loves us. And so today we're going to look at a passage out of Genesis, Genesis chapter 16. So let's turn there in our Bibles. In Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave into your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also told her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of, his, of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. 
She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Bir Laharoi. And it is still there between Kadesh and Bernard. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Whew, what a story. <laughs> what a story. We have Abram and Sarai, which you'll know from later on um, in Genesis, God changes their name to Abraham and Sarah. But for now, they're Abram and Sarai. So they're waiting for this promise God told them. And many years go by and God's promised son has not come. And Sarah, Sarai has not given birth and getting older each year. And so they have this quote unquote, brilliant idea. Sarai says, come take my my maidservant, take my slave Hagar, sleep with her. And maybe that's how God wants to fulfill his promise. Let's just try it out because God doesn't seem to be intervening here. We'll just take things into our own hands. And so Abraham does that. Hagar becomes pregnant. She starts to get a little bit um, kind of out of place in that society in terms of she's thinking, well, okay, well, now we know who the problem is. The problem's not Abraham. The problem's Sarai, um, who can't give birth. And so Sarai kind of gets starts resenting Hagar and mistreating her and um, abusing her. And so Hagar flees. She starts running into the desert. This is a character that we don't really see too much in scripture. We only see her here and then again later on in Genesis, twice. Like two chapters she's mentioned, she's not the main character in the story, like Abraham and Sarah. We see them all throughout scripture, even in the New Testament. Abraham's the father of faith, and um, Sarah is the mother of the promise, um, Isaac. And so this character, Hagar, she kind of is like unseen and unheard for most of the story of the Old and New Testament. However, when she does appear, I think it's for a really important reason. And we have so many beautiful lessons we can learn from her life. So today I wanna really dig into that and look at this name that Hagar gives to God. You are the God who sees me, she says later on. So who is the God who sees us, El Royi? And how does this work? What does it mean that he, God sees me? Is it like the all seeing eye or, you know, better watch out, you better not cry, Santa Claus? coming to town. He can see everything. He sees you when you're sleeping. It's not quite like that. So what does it mean that God sees us, that God sees you, that God sees me? Well, the first thing it means is that God can find me. So we see Hagar. She's being in a situation she did not choose. She did not choose to be a slave. She did not choose to have to leave Egypt and come and live in the wilderness with Abram and Sarai. That is not her choice. This woman is robbed of choice. She does not choose to have Abraham take her as his wife. That's not her choice. She doesn't choose to sleep with Abraham, though we can tell. It seems like that was Sarai's idea. She doesn't choose to get pregnant. That wasn't her choice. It wasn't like her and Abraham sat down. It's like, would you like to carry my child? Do you like to be a surrogate mother? That wasn't her choice. So she's used again and again. She Nothing belongs to her. Her home is not hers. Her body eventually is not hers. She doesn't have choice. She doesn't have agency over herself. 
hear um, Abram and Sarai talking about Hagar. They never use her name. They only ever say your slave or my slave or your servant or that girl, that woman. We never hear them using her name, Hagar. She doesn't even have her own identity. And so we can sympathize and empathize with Hagar to a certain degree and say, of course she's running away. Who wouldn't run away? We don't know how terrible a treatment that Sarai was was giving Hagar, but we do know that this pregnant woman decides it's better for her to take her chances in the wilderness trying to run um, to Egypt, which is hundreds of miles away, than to take her chances in the tent of Sarai. Things must have been pretty bleak. Things must have been pretty bad. She's, she's pregnant. She has no way of caring for herself. She finds herself kind of collapsing here in the wilderness. And it seems like Abram's kind of just passively washed his hands of the thing. This is not a great moment for the father of faith here. He just said, okay, Sarai, whatever you want, she's your servant, do with her what you want. And Sarai starts mistreating her terribly, starts abusing her essentially, and lets her run into the wilderness. It doesn't seem like Abram or Sarai went after Hagar. It doesn't seem like they're looking for her. And yet someone is, God is. Do you ever feel like you're in a circumstance that nobody else would understand? That it feels like you're invisible to everyone else around you? That the pain you're carrying in your heart is just too much to bear? That you want to run away from this pain? You want to run away from that job, from that boss who's really difficult to deal with? That you want to run away from that diagnosis that the doctor gave you? You want to just kind of pretend it didn't happen? Or you're trying to run away from a relationship that's just not working out the way you would have hoped and you would have planned for or thought? You want to run away or escape from the trials that you're facing in your life from those bills that are coming in the mail and piling up. You just kind of want to run away and escape from it all. Hagar literally runs away. And the only person looking for her, the only person coming after her is God. It says the angel of the Lord found her in the wilderness. This phrase, the angel of the Lord, many biblical scholars have um, this concept of the theophany, so a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Jesus Christ. And they think that this, the angel of the Lord statement here with Hagar, really is God himself appearing to her. We see this other times in the Old Testament. And if that is the case, if this is the theophany, if this is a, a disclosing of God and his presence, that the angel of the Lord isn't just an angel, but the angel, and this is God himself who has found her, He found her. He knew where she was the whole time. Even when you feel invisible to everyone around you, even when you've been hiding the things that have been going wrong, the pains that you've been experiencing, the conflicts that you're going through, even when nobody else sees you, God does. Even when nobody else is coming after you, when you're running away from these things, God is. Be found by God. Earlier, much earlier in the book of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve. And when they sinned, what's the first thing they did? They ran away. They started hiding. They're running away from God's presence as if you could do such a thing. They're hiding from God. And God comes down. And what's the first thing God says? Adam, 
where are you? He asks him where he is, not because he's lost track of Adam, not because he doesn't know where Adam is, but he's giving Adam a chance to come forward. He's giving Adam the chance to be found. He's giving Adam the knowledge that he's being looked for. You know, sometimes when my kids were really small, they would do things that would, I would know it's them, but they wouldn't own up to it. So for instance, I know one of them like drew a picture on the wall and it was like with marker and it wasn't the greatest, don't tell them. (laughs) It wasn't like, I don't have a Michelangelo growing up in my house. So I look at it and I'm like, these scribbles on the wall. Um, hi, who did this? (laughs) And I don't hear anything. Hey, Josiah, Bella, where are you? You know, and I see them, you know, hiding with a marker behind their back. And I'm not asking them those questions because I don't know the answers. I know where they are. I know who did this. It wasn't me. And those questions, because I'm in, I'm giving them the opportunity to come clean. I'm giving them the opportunity to come back into right relationship. I'm giving them the opportunity to be honest with me, to know that I can handle what they did. And also together, we can work on the consequences of that. And so whether we're running away because we did something wrong, it's sin or shame causing us to run away, whether we're running away because of something that's not our fault, something that was done to us or with us that was not, we did not consent to, and maybe we're running away from our past or shame. No matter the reason we're running away, we have a God who comes and looks for us. We have a God who sees the one no one else sees. We see this throughout the whole New Testament, Jesus doing this over and over again. He sees the tax collector everybody hides their face from. He sees the prostitute. Everybody closes their eyes. They don't even want to look at him. That's what some Pharisees would do. They would just close their eyes and they saw even a woman, let alone a prostitute. He opens his eyes to those everyone else ignores and doesn't see. You'll see often, sometimes Jesus does these miracles for people, even healing the man who was born blind. And he opens his eyes. He, he, he looks at him. He sees him. He does a miracle for him. And yet the people are saying, is this the man that we passed every day? They don't even recognize him. Why? Because they never stopped to really see him. And Jesus came to seek and save. That's what is lost. He is seeking you out. He is seeking me out in my sin, in my shame, in my brokenness, in my pain, in my doubt, in my questions. He's looking for you, just like he was looking for Hagar, and he found her in the wilderness. He found her right where she was. So what does God do when he finds us? He lets us know that he knows us. So he finds us, and he knows us. What does he know about Hagar? Well, he knows her by name. I said earlier that everybody in Hagar's story never uses her name. They only ever say my slave or my servant. They never say Hagar. The narrator does, but not the characters, not Abram or Sarai. And yet what does God say? How does God define Hagar? He knows her by name. Dale Carnegie, who is a, like a motivational speaker of how to win friends and influence people, has a famous quote about names. He says, a person's name is to him or her the sweetest and most important sound in any language. For Hagar to have God say to her, Hagar, what that must have meant. Hagar, I know you. 
Hagar, I know your name. Hagar, I recognize your personhood, your identity, not just as a slave to Sarai, but as Hagar, a woman who is seen and known by God. So the first thing he says is Hagar, her name, he knows her, not just by her usefulness to other people, not just by her suffering and what she's gone through, but by her name. When was the last time Hagar heard her name used in a way that didn't denote condescension or bitterness or contempt? When was the last time someone used her name lovingly? We don't know whether she was abandoned by her parents or orphaned. We don't know what her situation in Egypt was that precipitated her slavery to um, Abram and Sarai. But we do know that God knew her, and he knew her journey from beginning to end. In Isaiah 43, God talks to Israel and says, I have called you by name. You are mine. God knows your name. He knows your identity. He knows you. He sees you. He calls you by name. It is personal. It is loving. What does he say to her? He says, Hagar, slave of Sarai. So he reverses the order. Even in the narrative we see in Genesis 16 here, whenever they did use Hagar's name, narration, it always starts with the Egyptian slave of Sarai, comma, Hagar. But when God talks to her, he says, Hagar, he recognizes her personhood first. And then he recognizes her suffering. I know your name and I know your pain, Hagar. I know your name, Hagar. I know your pain, servant, slave of Sarai. He sees it all. And he asks her two important questions that show us he knows her name, that show us he knows her pain, that show us he cares. The first one is, where have you come from? That's a great question to ask ourselves. Where have you come from? What is your story? Did you come from a functional family where everything is great all the time? Or did you come from some kind of dysfunction? More likely, chances are not all of us have in some way or other, some more severe than others. But where have you come from? What's your story? What makes you you? the ups and the downs, the good days and the bad days. Where have you come from? She's running away from something. What are you running from? What's your story? God makes space for Hagar's story. She, he allows Hagar to share what's going on with her. He doesn't tell her, okay, pull it together. Hurry up. Let's go. <laughs> he makes space for her. He hears her. He sees her. He takes time to do that. Hagar, where have you been? Well, where has she been? She's been a slave. She's been um, used. She's been taken advantage of. She's been mistreated. She's been abused. Where have you been, Hagar? She's been in tears. She's pregnant now by a man that she didn't choose. And here she is in the wilderness. She's alone. That's where she's been. She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She's running away. This is where she's been. And he asks her, where are you going? Where are you going? Well, to her, she's on her way back to Egypt. 
She doesn't know where she's going. She doesn't know if she's going to die in the wilderness. She doesn't know if this baby she's carrying is going to survive. She doesn't know what the future holds. God asks her that, but she never answers that one because she didn't have a hope. She didn't have a future. She didn't have a vision for the future, but God's going to give that to her. Sometimes let's, we ask, should ask ourselves, not just where have I been and bring that to God, but where am I going? What is my hope? What is my future? What is my vision for the future? What is it that I long for or want? Bring that to God too. She doesn't have an answer for that second one, but God sure does. God tells her, where are you going? You are going to have this baby. This baby's, you're not going to miscarry this baby. You're going to have this baby. And he's going to be a son. And in that culture, a son was really um, the pinnacle of what you wanted to have because that was the carrier of your future and your line and would support you and take care of you. You're going to have a son and you're going to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. So God hears. So every time she says her son's name, Ishmael, Ishmael, she's hearing God hears. When she's back in the tent of Sarai and, you know, her, her little toddler's going to bump into something, she says, Ishmael, Ishmael. God hears, God hears. If he's about to get into trouble, if Sarah is making trouble for her, every time she says the name of her son, she remembers that God sees her, that God hears her, that God is present because you can only see or hear someone if they're near enough to you. You can't hear or see someone that you're not in proximity to. And God is saying, I am near you. I am with you, Hagar. I hear you. I hear your misery. I see you. I see your suffering. And I see who I'm going to make you to be. And I know that your future doesn't end here in the wilderness. And so God starts to give her um, some idea what the future holds. That this son, Ishmael, he says, he will be a wild donkey of a man. Now, if somebody said that to me about, you know, when I was pregnant, oh, your child's going to be a wild donkey. I would be very offended (laughs) don't try to say that to any pregnant woman. It's probably not advised, okay? But for her, in her position, she has been nothing but oppressed. She has been nothing but in in a weak space, the lowest of the social class. And God's saying to her, your son's going to be unbridled like a wild donkey. He's going to be strong. No one is going to oppress him. He's going to be the slave of no one. He's going to be free. He's not going to have to go and submit to others. He's going to try to make others submit to him. I'm going to make many descendants through you, Hagar. There's a promise for you too, not just for Abraham and Isaac, but there's a promise for Ishmael. God will take care of him. He will continue to see him and to hear him. So even though life will not be easy for Ishmael, God will still be with him. God will still remember Hagar and this moment. So where are you going and where have you come from? Great questions. And how is God speaking into redemption for your past and hope for your future? And the final thing that it means to have God see us is that God invites us to see him. And there's this beautiful moment where After this promise for Ishmael in verse 13, it says, she gave this name to the Lord. So the Lord gives a name to her future and a name to her destiny and a name to her purpose. He gives a name to her son. And then Hagar, 
this Egyptian slave who grew up in a household where gods were seen but could not see. They were made of, of objects. But she's seen the real God now. She's seen that he sees him. She says, you, I have now seen, you are the God who sees. You are the God who sees. She names God. Who is God in your life right now? Who do you say that he is? In, in Matthew chapter 16, we see Jesus coming to his disciples and saying, who do people say that I am? And Peter is like, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say that you're Moses. But Jesus says, and who do you say that I am? That's an important question to answer, honestly. Who do we see God as? Caring, compassionate, comforting, full of grace and love? Or do we see him as punitive, angry, a judge, on the edge, ready to get us? However we see God tells us something about an area in our heart and life that might need to be healed, an area where we're not seeing clearly. For those of you who wear glasses, and for those of you who don't, <laughs> there's this moment where you go to the eye doctor when you're getting a new prescription, and you think you're seeing clearly. I, I know I've walked around, we you know, with a prescription for a number of years, and I, you know, it's so subtle over time that the changes in sight happen that I don't realize I'm not seeing as clearly or as crisply as before. And I go to the eye doctor and they have this machine. They're like, click, is it A or B? Which one's clear? Which one's better? And at the end of all of that, I get this new prescription. I get these new glasses, these new contacts. And I start to see clearer. And I realize I was missing out. I was missing out on seeing things as they actually are. And sometimes we think we can see God. We can see him for what he is as we read the Bible or as we learn new things about him or as we hear another sermon. But God's inviting us to see a little more clearly, to see him and therefore to know him more, to know who he is in our lives and who he wants to be. So when she says, you are the God who sees me, she says, I have now seen. I have now seen the one who sees me. This is no longer the God of Abraham and Sarai. This is my God. And he's not just looking out for Abram and Sarai. He's looking out for me. He's my God too. And so she has this moment with him. I have seen the one who sees me. All throughout scripture, we see this promise that God is watching, that he is looking, that his eyes are going back and forth throughout the world to, to see those whose hearts are committed to him. Psalm 34, 15, repeated also in 1 Peter 3, 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their cry. Psalm 94, does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Throughout this passage, many times back in, when you look at it in the Hebrew, when Abram and Sarai are talking to each other and, and, and they say, oh, do whatever you want, whatever you think is best. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says, do what is right in your eyes. Whatever you think is right in your eyes, go do that. And so there's Abram and Sarai's eyes, but then there's God's eyes. And how beautiful that God's eyes are turned to Hagar, the one who feels unseen, the one who feels forgotten, the one who feels unnoticed. Even if the things that you do for God, nobody sees them, God sees them. They matter to him. Even if you hide your tears from everyone around you because you're afraid to be a burden, 
You're afraid to show your brokenness. God sees your tears. God sees the best of you and he sees the worst of you and he loves you and he knows you and he invites you to see him seeing you. Psalm 139 talks about how no matter where we go, no matter what we do, that God is with us, that he is for us, that even when we were knit in our mother's womb, that his eyes saw our unformed body. God's eyes have seen it all. And when God says, I love you, it's coming from a God who knows us, who sees us. When God comforts us, it's a holistic comfort. He doesn't just see a part of our story. He doesn't just hear a little bit of it. He sees and knows it all. God is with us and he loves us. So today I invite you to know this God who sees you, to see a little bit of him to see him more clearly. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who sees us. And I pray for each person in the sound of my voice that no matter what position in life they find themselves in, whether they are sitting alone in a doctor's office, you see them. Whether they're, they're, they're waiting for, um, for a blessing from you that they've been asking for over and over, God, you see them. God, at work, when they feel overlooked and everyone else is getting promoted around them but them, even though they're trying their best, God, you see them. God, you see each of us in the unique circumstances that we find ourselves in and you love us. I pray today that you would just reveal that to our hearts, that we would feel seen and known and loved by you. Thank you for seeing us. In your name we pray.